Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time talking with Juicy Tamborello, the editor of a book that just came out with Carocci Editore in 2012, and that book is called Concepts and Categories of Emotion in East Asia. Now, over the course of our discussion, um, we talked certainly about the book, about some of the standout pieces in the book, about Juicy's own contribution to the book that looks at um, emotion in the poetry of the 1960s and to some extent the 70s in China. We also talked about, and we talked quite a lot about, the broader issues that are involved in doing something like the history or literary study of emotion um, across a culture and across a collectivity. Um, So these sorts of issues, the ways of thinking about how to relate something like the individual expression of emotion to something collective, running, going from an embodied um, expression to a textual expression, the relation of language and reading to that. All of these issues, um, I think, are central for thinking about what emerges out of the volume and also central for thinking more generally about a topic, namely emotion um, or affect, that really has permeated many, many areas of humanistic and social sciences discourse um, recently. I mean, this is uh, emotion and affect. This is an emerging um, topic, has been an emerging topic that is of interest to a a wide variety of disciplines. Um, And so we talked a lot about these broader issues as they pertain to this very local case study. Um, It was was really a pleasure to talk with Juicy, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, Juicy. Good afternoon, Carla. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Juicy Tamborello about her recently edited volume called Concepts and Categories of Emotion in East Asia. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Juicy, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much, Carla, for calling me. <laughs> I'm very nice. Of course. So, Juicy, could you start off um, by saying just a little bit about yourself, um, about the, your background, and what brought you to the study of Chinese literature in particular? Oh, well, it's a very long story since, you know, I'm a kind of aged woman now. <laughs> but anyway, in, during the 70s, I was a student in one of the Italian universities for Chinese uh, studies. I was studying in, in Naples. And after my studies, I got a scholarship and went to China for um, initially 10 months, and then it became three years. And I was a student uh, at the University of Nanking for two years and then again in Beijing. And and then, okay, when I came back to Italy, I got my graduation from the university and then started working as a freelance for different companies in uh, America, in China, in Italy, and also in the Netherlands. Until the time when I was asked to start um, a course of Chinese language at the University of Lecce, which is also in the southern part of Italy, which I did starting in 1997. And uh, in uh, year 2008, I was invited by the university of my own uh, hometown, which is Palermo in Sicily, to start the course in Chinese there too. So I'm now a senior lecturer 
and uh, I live in Palermo, my hometown, and we are just having this adventure of starting a Chinese course in this city, which is quite late if you want, but still, there are many students and they seem to enjoy it very much. So the volume in uh, the volume that we'll be talking about today is a volume that focuses on emotion in East yeah. Asia, and these are um, the volume as, as we'll talk about um, in the course of our conversation spans uh, across many different time periods, many different topics. But let's talk for a moment about the the main topic, emotion in East Asia. Can you talk a little bit for us about what brought you to this particular set of questions? Why? What brought you um, to the to an interest in emotion in particular? In Chinese literature, Chinese poetry. Uh, well, there is actually a long-lasting program uh, about emotion in East Asia, and this is a program that was started in year two thousand, or less, by Professor Sant'Angelo. He was—he's a former uh, teacher of mine uh, while I was at university in Lecce, and uh, he uh, organizes every two years um, a conference, an international conference on issues connected to emotion in uh, East Asia. In year 2006, I was given this task, and because I deal with emotion while I do research on poetry and uh, narrative in Chinese literature, I found that was a very, very good chance to try to add something more to this topic for my studies, for instance. And yeah, and for this reason, we arranged this conference in uh, Lecce. So I'll ask you about the conference itself in a moment because that's um, really the the origin of the volume itself. But first, I'd love to know a little bit more about for you in, in the course of your research interests in particular. What interests you about um, looking at emotion in particular in poetry? What brought you in the course of your own research to that topic? Well, you know, uh, when I went to China first, and that was in 1980, um, I went there with the idea of writing my graduation thesis about um, Chinese theater, and uh, exactly about um, an actor, uh, Mei Lanfang, who was um, acting as a woman character in the Peking Opera. But when I went to China, I was um, striken by the fact that many, many, many people were writing uh, short stories there. It was a very, very peculiar time in China uh, because the um, so-called Gang of Four was undergoing a process in 19, uh, a trial actually, 1980. But people were very willing to um, use narrative to just write out their emotions, in fact. Uh, Chairman Mao had uh, passed away in 1976. The country was trying to uh, move towards a new direction, but there were no words somehow to express this new trend of the country. So uh, there was uh, this blossoming of short stories, and I was caught by this blossoming, and I wrote my thesis on that uh, topic, only to find out that, in fact, even before that time, that was exactly during the 60s, poets were writing about this new trend of China in a way which was not absolutely uh, well-defined because it was too new so, to a certain extent, but they were trying to deal with the new feeling of finding something else in poetry, and that something else was a kind of uh, shift from collective ideas for the whole people and individual needs from the poets, from the individual in a new situation in a China which was changing. Mm -hmm. That's great. And when we um, 
when we come to a little bit later in our conversation, this will recur because this is actually this shift from a focus on the collective to a focus on the individual is very much um, part of what you talk about in your own contribution to the volume. So in, in a very interesting way. Thank you. <laughs> so let's. Um, so the volume itself um, is an edited volume, and as you mentioned, this came out of a conference um, that I think I recall you saying occurred in two thousand six. Can you say a little bit about that conference and sort of the nature of it? Was it a huge um, affair? Was it relatively small? What was the nature of the conference that spurred the volume? Well, it was, you know, kind of, for me, it was a kind of, you know, a huge uh, activity because there were more than 25 people who came from all over the world to this tiny little city of 100,000 inhabitants, which is Lecce, uh, which is a wonderful small city uh, in the southern part of Italy, uh, characterized by uh, an architectural style, which is Baroque style obtained with a stone, um, a sandy stone, which is just, you know, in that area, that people during the, the, the 16th century were able to um, uh, work in a way that is still uh, existing and which is very, very beautiful. And in this tiny city, all these people coming from New Zealand and Singapore and China and the States and other European countries, they all came there to stay together for a few days and talk about emotion in East Asia. Uh, I think it was really great because um, people seem to appreciate the town itself. I also tried to bring them closer to the local emotion by inviting young people playing local music and local um, and showing also the local way of dancing, uh, a dance which is called pizzica. Uh, and I think it was a very, very emotional <laughs> Activity. Uh, I think we all enjoyed it very much. That's very appropriate for it to be very emotional, given the, the theme. <laughs> you can say that, really. So now that it's 2012, um, so from 2006 to 2012, there must have been a great deal of work that went into producing this volume. Can you talk a little bit about that process for you? What was involved for you as the editor in going from this collection of talks and this large conference to going to um, what we have in hand, which is this, this edited volume? Mm -hmm. If you allow me, I will just skip the the funding issue. Sure. I mean, start for funds because that is a very very difficult part, and it becomes more and more difficult nowadays. But okay, I would I will skip that because everybody can experience that. In fact, but um, concerning uh, the work in itself that I've done, I found it a very very interesting work because uh, people who have given their contributions uh, to this volume are from very many walks of life. Um, most of them, of course, are scholars in uh, universities or um, they just are freelance somehow scholars, but they are all dealing with um, issues um, concerning emotions and developed uh, in uh, countries like China uh, and Indonesia and Japan. We would have liked to have an even bigger amount of countries represented in this uh, book, but as a matter of fact, um, it is just important to see um, the, the very spread influence of China on the whole area. And uh, uh, because people were coming from different uh, backgrounds, I had to sort of harmonize uh, all the contributions and that means also to uh, confront yourself with a different approach uh, to how to make research. Mm -hmm. 
Um, everybody has his own uh, attitude towards that. Uh, there are different rules applying to how you write about doing research. And therefore, for me, it was like just dealing with all this contribution was a continuous source of learning, in fact. And uh, uh, it was really funny to find out that, for instance, I would think that Italian people uh, writing a, a contribution might be a little bit messy, but that's not quite true. I found it even more messy with people coming, for instance, um, um, messy in, in a kind of creative way, not in a, in a kind of negative uh, way, but in a creative way, people coming from the States, for instance. Whereas um, the scholars from Japan and uh, China, they can be very, very, very um, rationally organized towards how to work with a paper. So it was very, very interesting. It was kind of, of traveling through the world via the contributions. And the volume indeed contains contributions from authors who work in many, many different fields and many different time periods and even geographic areas. So let's talk for, um, for a moment or two about the ways that an embracing of interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity really seems to have shaped the volume. Now, you mentioned briefly in the volume that you actually decided not to, you consciously decided not to standardize the English, um, the citation style, or even the means of rendering Chinese terms in particular forms of transcription or even sort of using characters or not across the pieces in the volume. You know that this was a decision that was based on wanting to give the reader a sense of the diversity, the great diversity of approaches, as you've just um, alluded to, uh, that were brought to these issues by the author. So can you say a little bit about that decision um, and how you came to that decision of sort of rendering um, the diversity of experience for the reader by leaving these um, leaving these changes or these differences intact in the papers? Well, you know, it's very um, visual, uh, a kind of issue. Uh, as soon as you open the book, you will find that some people are writing the Chinese characters and they're writing the transcription in Latin letters next to it. Some people, they don't do it. Um, some people only use the Latin transcription. Uh, these are all possible ways. I could have very easily wrote everything to standard, but then we would have missed these differences. And I think that the... the the world of today, um, on one hand, is quite um, multifaceted somehow. You can see um, many things are happening in many different ways all over. But on the other hand, just the use of the computer, uh, of the internet, uh, in one way or the other leads you towards a kind of standard uh, that you recognize uh, no matter where you are. And I wanted to somehow uh, break through this kind of, of homologation somehow. And I left uh, the, the, the scholar, the researcher, just free to move in his own environment. And, of course, um, I had to find a way that also would guarantee that there was still a scientific approach to all these kind of decisions. But I think that that was preserved and still there is a kind of variety that remains. And I think that that is quite important uh, somehow, uh, an aspect of this volume. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. I think that's it's so interesting to think about these kinds of decisions and 
to um, it's it's I'm fascinated by um, the decision to leave this kind of freedom in the volume because it really speaks to a larger set of issues that a lot of us who work in the humanities right now um, come face to face with in discussions about the globalizing of disciplines, right? The sort of um, trying to make our individual disciplines and the humanities in general more polyvocal, more multi-centered. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is really, this really seems to speak to that. This decision really seems to make the volume into really a kind of icon for that kind of embracing of diversity. So it's, I thought that was very interesting. Well, I, I appreciate your evaluation very much. It gives me some kind of you know, courage. I also would, would like to add a little um, note to this. Okay, there is this kind of decision that has been made. But on the other hand, I did try to give some kind of uniformity by uh, choosing this line of the emotion that was the leading uh, topic for each contribution. There was this kind of a linearity of time, as I call it, which is just to, to place these contributions starting from the more, uh, most ancient times until today. So there's a kind of, you know, we follow somehow, some, somehow the way the time is passing. And the other thing which was uh, creating the uniformity of this volume was the idea that the culture that is uh, taken into consideration is the Chinese culture and its development in other uh, neighboring areas. So there was a kind of um, necessity also of creating a kind of balance between the uniformity and between the freedom of the researcher of expressing himself or herself in his or her own way. Now, to talk for a moment about the geographic scope of the volume, because you've, I think, very helpfully brought that up, the the geographic scope of the volume is East Asia um, more broadly, even though, as you mentioned, all of the papers have some core um, thread of the importance of China within them. But the nature, though, of the contributions are that while most of them are focused on and self-identify as being part of Chinese history, there are there's also work on materials from Japan. There's work on materials on, for example, Javanese shadow theater. Can you talk for a little bit about um, that decision? How did you decide to incorporate this more expansive scope, including papers on Japanese and Javanese materials, rather than simply focusing all of the papers on very um, firmly on China and Chinese materials? Well, you know, every time that you uh, deal with China, uh, somehow you fall into this um, metaphor of the box into another box uh, issue. Uh, as soon as you open up uh, 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 one of the boxes, then you find out that inside that box there are even more than a thought. So um, it's never possible, in my opinion, to uh, make a topic exhausted by um, uh, a work about China. China is always bigger uh, than you think. China is always bigger than you have been preparing yourself to. And therefore, um, what you can do uh, is somehow, or in my opinion, to try to bring some more uh, um, description of this culture uh, by, you know, 
you can really hip hop from one place to another because each of them will give another um, facet to, to this big uh, diamond somehow. So it's not necessarily really to uh, want to fulfill the complete you know, view of China. It will never happen. It's far too big. And therefore, just giving a little bit of hitches, you know, this is a little bit of Japan, this is a little bit of Java somehow, can give the idea of the extension of the influence of this Chinese culture, but will never become exhaustive somehow. So it's better to just give a little bit than trying, you know, the impossible. And, and I felt very, very, um, how to say, limited by uh, this enormous knowledge that China is. So I could only try to give a little bit of an idea. That was all. Okay. Now, um, to, let's sort of stay on this track um, for a moment. You, um, the, the focus of the volume, as you mentioned also, is it was very important for you that all of the papers dealt in some way with the importance of emotion. So emotion in literature, emotion in history. Emotion is such an important topic, and right now many different academic fields are concerned on some level with dealing with this theme, this topic, the experience of emotion, of affects. But it's also, for its richness, potentially very, very broad in scope. So in putting together this volume, the title itself, and one of the things that gets elaborated in a, in a few of the pieces later on, um, is not just emotion, but concepts and categories of emotion. This speaks to the idea, and this is an idea that comes up explicitly, um, in, again, in many of the pieces, but also particularly in um, the preface by Professor Santangelo, as you mentioned before, the idea that we can classify all emotions into a number of categories. Those categories might be, for example, fear, love, sorrow, joy, and anger, I think are the basic categories given um, at, at certain parts of the book. Now, this idea of categorizing emotions, um, this is very ambitious. Can you talk a little bit about this particular approach to looking for and studying emotions um, in literature and in history? Well, that is the point. Uh, we did try in the um, title of the book to fix the attention on concepts and categories just because it is absolutely difficult to define concepts and categories of emotion, and even more when it comes to East Asia. So different they are uh, from um, our ways of expressing these kind of uh, things. It's very difficult to um, uh, define, uh, the, describe the concept and define the categories of emotion because um, they come to the real core of a culture. Um, we um, we can consider uh, the individual expression of the emotion, and we can recognize it when it it is linked to the cultural background of that um, area of that uh, culture. But it is really difficult to give a clear uh, depicted uh, description of the concept or to establish categories, because where, whenever the, the emotion is involved, there is the human factor that remains totally unpredictable. Therefore, um, the description uh, through literature, through uh, art, through music, or through philosophy, is just an attempt to come a little, little bit closer 
to this field of emotion that remains undescribable somehow to a certain extent, or actually to a very big extent, both in the West as well as in the, in the East, in order to come a little bit closer to these um, Eastern cultures, which are somehow uh, different from ours. And I have given an example uh, just to start my introduction to the volume when I said that uh, a day I was traveling on a train in China and all of a sudden the train uh, came to a an halt and we tried to find out what, what had happened and because we didn't know we had to wait until the train moved forward uh, to find out that somebody had been um, uh, hit by the train on the way. And when the Chinese person uh, to whom I'd asked uh, gave me the reply, I was really surprised by the fact that this guy was smiling at me. Uh, and I was, well, I mean, when it came to this uh, volume, uh, this um, situation came back to my, to my mind, and I had to think about, and then okay, I found out that smiling is somehow a way uh, to show yourself in a kind of easy way, so not to make the other person frightened. But that is a, a very difficult way of expressing such an emotion if compared to my own country. And I come from Sicily, I come from the Mediterranean uh, area. And when I should tell somebody that somebody has just died because of something like this, well, you know, uh, a different um, expression would be uh, on my face. Uh, it would be a kind of sorrow. It would be a kind of, you know, um, uh, yeah, just sorrow. I, I would feel very sorrow uh, for, um, for this, for this um, happening. And, and I would not smile. So there might be a feeling which is at the base of this emotion that is the same. We both feel unhappy, but someone is directly showing this uh, uneasiness. The other one has to um, find a kind of other way to it. Uh, somehow he has to disguise this feeling. So in this, we have different ways of expressing. So by trying to describe the concept of emotion, in East Asia and try to define categories, we might come closer to the way uh, of Oriental people of showing their emotions. And by doing this, we could maybe come closer in communication to them. So this actually raises a, an interesting um, potential set of issues that when you're trying to understand how to look at the uh, the importance of emotion in a particular work, um, in a particular piece of literature, in the work of an author, or certainly more broadly, we're talking about a kind of phenomenon that asks us to be um, very careful or, or creative or thoughtful about the way these kinds of phenomena manifest in individuals versus collectivities, right? Because when we're talking about something like emotion, and this is certainly true for many of the papers in the volume, and I think in the spirit of the volume as a whole, there is something to this um, that asks us to think carefully about how we negotiate between the individual and the group, um, for example, um, in, in trying to understand something about emotion, especially when we're trying to understand emotion at the level of both an individual work, an individual expression, and then something like the, the level of a culture or something like the level of a language. In fact, and so one of the things that I'd love um, for you to, to say a little bit about in terms of what you think about this, um, it's staying with this idea of the concepts and categories in particular, 
of emotion. And this gets at something um, like what you're what you're saying, I think, about the kind of broader cultural basis of certain um, emotional uh, exp- expressive norms. And thinking mm-hmm. about this, um, for example, in the preface to the book, uh, Paulo Santangelo, again, we can keep bringing him up. Um, he's sort of here with us, it seems, in, in a, a phantom form. He provides a very detailed list um, in his piece of some of the main categories of emotions that emerge out of his work and his group's analysis of Chinese texts. And these are lists of terms and lists of categories that really seem to aim to systematize um, emotion and, and the sort of range of emotional registers in Chinese texts. And if I'm not mistaken, this may be part of a database project. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, and sort of about the um, a project of categorizing and um, really cataloging emotion across a language or across a culture like that, and the ways that that intersects with the way you view emotion at the level of the individual. Well, you know, um, what you say about the work uh, that Paolo Santangelo is doing around this subject is quite correct. And there is, in fact, the existence of a database which is uh, being increased, you know, with um, entries uh, year after year. Uh, and um, I would like to uh, drive your attention to something which is maybe um, what gives us the biggest of the problems in uh, in uh, dealing with China. Uh, we are dealing with the language, the Chinese language, uh, that is a language um, based on, on a kind of layers of meaning. A word can come from the very old times and uh, can still exist in today's language, but it carries with it layers and layers of um, history, philosophical thought, and therefore interpreting this word uh, means uh, to just dig into this kind of uh, background. Um, if you uh, come across the um, uh, paper uh, written by Yuekeung Lo, that is Mind, Hurt and Emotion in the Amplex of Confucius, uh, the word mind hurt should already uh, somehow um, attract your attention because uh, it, it's all about the, the word xin in Chinese. That nowadays we translate just like heart, the heart of a person, the xin. Uh, but as a matter of fact, uh, this word, if um, considered in Confucius time, which is something like 500 years uh, before uh, Christ, um, has the idea of both heart and mind. Um, So there is in this word both an idea of emotional approach as well as an idea of reasoning about that approach. And um, the whole uh, contribution by uh, law is around this third of the Chinese language that shows the whole process of uh, maturing, if we can say so, of uh, a character like Confucius, who was very keen on the rights of the Zhou dynasty when he was 14, and who eventually, uh, by the age of seven, which was kind of intuitive interest, the kind of immediate interest as a young guy towards this topic, with the age and with the work of the 
mind, on the heart, made him become uh, a kind of um, man of equilibrium towards the end of his life, where he could uh, behave spontaneously, so to say, by knowing very well, by having uh, thought and considered over for a very, very long, long time on how to um, harmonize, and I use again this word not just by chance, the individual emotional um, issue with the collective uh, well-being of the society around him. So there is an impulse that you have, but you have to be able to uh, put this impulse within a frame of the collective uh, needs of a society. So, you know, uh, the, the work of ca categorization, the work of the, with the database uh, that uh, Professor Sant'Angelo is bringing forward is really based on each single word that is expressing emotions, Chinese culture. But, uh, you have to find them, of course, through the lines of um, literature, of poetry. And the difficulty of this work is just to feel, perceive, and to know the different layers of this language, which is complicated just for this reason. So what, um, before we move on, I just, this is fascinating, this is fascinating to me. For, in your experience, what kind of training or what kind of preparation or background or insight does a scholar need to have in order to be able to read language coming out of a text and intuit from that language what the emotional register behind it may have been? Oh, well, it's a, it's a rather <clears throat> complicated uh, work because uh, it's very specializing in one way or the other because you cannot really know everything. Uh, I mean, of course, in every uh, field of, of, of knowledge, it's not possible to know everything, but even more with Chinese. So uh, the papers that are included in this uh, volume, they all come from very specific fields of studies and from very specialized scholars on that field. Because uh, it's really like, you know, um, dismounting a kind of construction. You really have to, um, to take all the screws out of it and you have to find out what is behind all these screws. It's really uh, the fascination, the, the mystery that we um, uh, think of when thinking about China. It's just most probably in this language of this culture. It's um, kind of, you know, uh, a deep, uh, uh, a deep pit in which you fall into, uh, and you never know when you will reach the bottom. <laughs> really, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really, it's really unbelievable somehow. Sometimes I just feel scared by that. But anyway, you need a lot of resistance. <laughs> I think we at times we all feel scared about our own work <laughs> or about the challenges inherent in our work. Now, for all of the diversity in the pieces collected in the volume, the contributions also explore some common questions and some common themes. And those include um, the issue, like we've been talking about, of collective emotion. How are collective emotions experienced or expressed, rather, in documents? Um, another question might be, do literary and artistic genres or forms influence the way emotions are expressed within them? Do specific kinds of documents lend themselves to expressing specific kinds of emotions? And then finally, another one that we might um, pull out, how do some sources actually manipulate a reader's emotions? So this is a different way of thinking about the relationship between 
text and emotion, not as something that um, is being expressed through a text, but rather a goal of or a performative um, kind of aim of, of language in a text? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a very nice uh, question because um, there are a few uh, contributions in the volume that might uh, express this um, a reply to this question in a very uh, broad uh, way. I might think, for instance, of the um, paper by Mara Miller uh, about the Ganges Gardens. Uh, it's really very fascinating because of the fact that uh, the way the garden is being depicted uh, time by time in the Genji's Tale, uh, this long um, uh, novel of the Japanese um, literature, uh, shows in the way the garden is described just the emotion of the characters involved. And Mara Miller goes through this line in a very, very, very fascinating way by really describing each single element in the garden from the stone to the kind of flower or to the season in which the garden is being described that really um, uh, gives very much this connection between the literary uh, work and the emotion and the way it is being transmitted. And even more, I would also think about the um, paper by uh, Madame Kaya, who uh, writes about the Je suis, je pas, uh, which is the, um, the daily of the hot blood. Uh, it describes uh, the way the magazines or the newspapers better uh, would try to um, uh, invite and stimulate people towards rebellion by the kind of words that, the, that would be chosen in that uh, newspaper. And it's not by chance that je suis hot blood is the title or the name given to this newspaper. And we are uh, only at the beginning of the last century, in 1925. So, um, yeah, there is a power of the words that can be very strong. And um, uh, especially when coming to words like blood, for instance, uh, these are new usage of these kind of words in literature. And by the fact that they are so new, because I mean, blood is something that immediately uh, attracts your attention towards, for instance, the body, towards uh, the wound, uh, for instance, from which the blood comes out. And this is not harmony in China. This is not an harmonious uh, thought. Therefore, at the time when you choose to uh, make use of this word, you are already working on a kind of uh, idea that you're kind of uh, that you're trying to transmit onto the reader, onto the other one. And in fact, in particular for this um, newspaper, it was used to convey the rage of the people and to um, uh, stimulate the people to, you know, rise up, to fight. Um, and uh, uh, another another uh, example that I could give, which is also in, included in the, in the book, is the uh, paper by Li Ma. Uh, she's a Chinese uh, researcher, she's a Chinese professor, in fact, which is about rage and indignation at the end of the UN and the beginning of the Ming, when the emperor Ming Taizu starts the new dynasty, the new Ming dynasty, 
that the um, the personality of Ming Taizu is a personality very much based in rage. He's always very furious. He has furious reaction towards his officials. And the article gives even a description of all the kind of tortures that these officials had to undergo when the emperor was really angry. And Lima describes something which is very interesting, and that is that the range of the individual, um, in this case the emperor, so the highest power in, uh, in the Chinese society, by being so um, out of control, so out of harmony, leads to the increase of rage in the people that eventually will fight even against the will uprise against the emperor. So, you know, it's very uh, where the limit is, um, where the balancing factor between one and the other is, well, it can be found somehow in these words. And it's worth expressed in the literature or in poetry or yeah, in, in the lines of uh, the Chinese narrative. Okay, thank you. Now, in addition to editing the volume, Juicy, you also contributed an essay. And this essay is on emotions in Chinese poetry of the 1960s and also the 1970s um, in some of the sources. Can you introduce um, your piece for our listeners, sort of set the stage? What is, um, what's the nature of your piece and what are you trying to argue? Yeah, um, I've been using during this interview quite often the word harmony, and harmony is a kind of uh, basic concept of the uh, Chinese culture. And uh, nowadays, it, it has come back uh, in use because a harmonic relation to the rest of the world is also part of today's policy in China. And uh, harmony uh, gives also the idea of, of equilibrium. And traditional poetry, classical poetry in China, had this harmony, this equilibrium, as one of the very basic elements to Chinese poetry. Um, there is a moment of uh, shifting towards something else, towards a kind of um, apparently a break from this harmony, when uh, these young people uh, who are writing poetry during the 60s, and they are uh, young poets aged 18 or 19, who have left uh, the school uh, during the Cultural Revolution and moved to the countryside because they were pushed to go there and learn how people, the normal people were living, the common people were living. But they had to give up their studies, and they were staying there working with the peasants, with the fishermen, with you know people working their daily life uh, day by day. And uh, all of a sudden, they realize that there is a kind of dissatisfaction in their way of feeling towards society around, not just the society where they are in, but more the society that has been created by um, uh, directions coming from uh, the political uh, level. And the, they realize by this feeling of uneasiness that the reason why they feel uneasy is that they cannot find themselves represented in these collective movements that are being called up by the political um, level. There is a kind of something else, there is a kind of individual that needs to find some kind of collocation, some kind of expression. And uh, they are very young. And this is also very interesting because poetry 
is something that, in my opinion, appeals to young people, and in China is still a mean of expression, a traditional one even. And these people, these young people, try to uh, use a language which can express more closely their way of feeling. And uh, in their poems, um, you find words like want, for instance, like heart, that is sometimes sinking to um, the depth of this uneasiness. And, you, and they start constructing the poem in a way that apparently lacks the traditional harmony. But as a matter of fact, because they start from a point in a kind of circular um, development of the poem, they still uh, preserve the harmony. So um, I find it extremely interesting because new words are brought in in this poetry um, with the idea of finding something that has been left aside for too long, which is the individuality. And at the same time, so deep is um, their uh, knowledge of their own culture that somehow it is really difficult to move away from it and to just break from this. But um, these young poets uh, are also influenced by um, the poetry of foreign poets that uh, they do not know in the original language because they cannot speak foreign languages. They have come to know them through translations, which is also another very fascinating issue. Mm -hmm. This way of um, making poetry outside of China becomes a very useful tool for people living inside China to create something else, something different from what had been until that time. So um, I, I take into consideration um, a, a poet whose name is uh, Shi Zhi, who uh, also went through um, psychiatric uh, assistance because, okay, he went a little bit out of mind since uh, he could not cope with the situation around him. And also other poets who have become uh, also very, very famous, like Duodua, for instance, or Genze, whose uh, poetic activity uh, only lasted a year because uh, his poems were um, found by the police and then he became really afraid and didn't want to write anymore. So, you know, when you do research on this uh, period and on these uh, poets, uh, the um, uh, picture that comes out of uh, China as a country is really very, very um, diverse under many aspects. Now, you, you just mentioned um, a few, four of some of the really interesting individual poets um, that you introduce us to and that you guide us through the work of in your piece. So, Shizhi, Guo Lusheng, Genze, and Duoduo. And um, Genze, in particular, I think, uses terminology and descriptions of wounds quite a bit, um, which speaks to some of um, the importance of what you were saying earlier about sort of but language of body parts and hearts and wounds and how this is part of the story. They're also, um, your description of them as all young also raises some really interesting um, further lines of inquiry potentially for thinking about youth um, and expressiveness of emotion and sort of translating emotion also I think is, is really, really interesting. Now, you use the very detailed um, study of these the work of these four poets 
to characterize the emotion, or to, to sort of teach us something about um, an emotional register that you're characterizing that covers Chinese poetry in the 1960s and to some extent the 1970s. Can you talk um, just for a moment as we sort of um, come to the um, the final stages of, of our discussion today, can you talk about um, that move, the move from, again, the individual to the collective, the move from uh, the work of an individual poet to discussing or characterizing um, the emotional register of an entire um, sort of moment of or category of or time period of Chinese poetry. Is there a critical mass of poets whose work you feel you need to consult in order to be able to discern that? Or do you look for poets whom you feel are representative in some way? How do you negotiate for yourself in this work between those two, uh, those two poles? Uh, well, I, I base myself normally on, <clears throat> on the theory of um, uh, a, an Austrian um, literary critic whose name is Leo Spitzer. Spitzer, I think it's pronounced in Austrian, but I'm not really able with that. Um, I find uh, his point of view really interesting because um, he says a couple of things which are fundamental for me. One thing is that um, there is always, um, uh, since language represents the way we are, there is, uh, uh, there can, we can observe uh, in, in, in a literary piece, uh, words or sentences or elements of the um, uh, sentence that are particularly striking because they represent a kind of shift from somehow normality. Uh, if, we, if we want to use this word which doesn't say much, but anyway, when something seems to be a little bit different from what you would expect, that something is, according to Spitzer, uh, what gives uh, the idea of the peculiarity. Um, uh, when you observe this, you can try to um, describe a way of composing. Um, the, the, the basic element for Spitzer is that you have to love an author in order to be able to talk about him. So my uh, discriminating point, if you want, if you want to call it like that, is that I feel attracted towards an author, towards something in the style that, you know, takes me somehow. At first, it's kind of non-rational uh, reason behind it. You just feel attracted. But as soon as you start reading and reading and reading through this process of close reading, uh, the piece, then you uh, start building a kind of, of complete uh, picture of this author. Then you could say, okay, but who says that the words that you've chosen are the right words? But that is also what is very interesting in Spitzinger. He says that every time you start from a point and you start writing or describing your point, uh, then somebody else who can be a reader, another uh, critic or whoever, can always dismantle the whole construction that you have made. Um, so again, we come to this possibility of a variety of approaches and each approach giving one more piece of the whole story. So um, my um, the reason why I've chosen this peculiar um, poets is that I simply like them very much. 
And by just reading them more and more, uh, I simply uh, found out or thought that there were words like the wound, like the, uh, the heart that becomes like a stone. Like um, another thing which is very uh, special is the uh, connection with the use of time. There is a time that goes forward, but that can also go backwards somehow. And by this, it brings in uh, new discoveries in, in the field of physics or um, uh, getting back to the idea of time uh, according to Buddhism. Uh, you know, there are many things that mix together. Uh, only you try to follow a line, an interpreting line, and okay, if somebody else could just say, well, what you've done is just work less, but okay, I'm open to that as well. Doesn't <laughs> oh, I disagree with that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's such an interesting volume, and, and Juicy, we've taken up a lot of your time today in talking about that volume, so um, before I let you go and um, thank you profusely for making the time, there's a lot of material in this book, of course, um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Uh, you've mentioned some of the really interesting pieces. There are pieces on um, topics in this book that range from medieval Chinese psychophysical techniques to studies of the analects, music, Genji's gardens, rage, um, rhetoric of emotion in the 17th century, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different kinds of um, topics that are explored in this volume. Is there anything else in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for our listeners, and especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, I, I hope that by, if somebody decides then to read this book, and also thanks to you, Carla, um, I hope that, um, the idea, uh, will, uh, come out of, uh, this very, very inner, uh, consistency of the Chinese tradition. Um, it is a culture that, um, has very much taken into consideration the uh, relation of the individual and the other individuals in a society, uh, has tried to create a kind of code of behavior that can put these individuals in communication. And uh, this has meant that the individual has to be able to control himself or herself. And by this control, uh, the good of the society uh, can become important, can become valuable. And this is a kind of idea that no matter uh, which kind of aspect of the expression of the cultural um, meaning of, a of, of this China is um, used to express it, but still keeps this kind of consequent uh, attitude. So I hope that this will come out in spite of the variety of papers and of approaches to this uh, culture. It's there, and it's only <clears throat> up to us to just simply recognize it in its um, expressions. Thank you. So now that the volume's out and published, and congratulations on that, what's next for you? Um, what do you? What kinds of projects or projects are you working on now, and what's most um, inspiring you at the moment? Well, um, my next project is uh, um, about a woman poet. Uh, she uh, has been, uh, during the 50s of last century, the translator in Chinese of the French poems of Charles Baudelaire. Um, I came to her just reading uh, Dodo's poetry, 
uh, poetry. And um, uh, I found out that she somehow uh, the source of the creative um, development of Dodo. And because of this, I found out that she she was a chef poet. Uh, she had a very difficult life. Sometimes she had to live in, uh, actually to live in uh, ruined temples. And she had to take care of her two children uh, without any means because she was really, um, she did not have a fixed job somehow. Uh, and therefore, she, the life, life was really difficult for her. But in spite of this, she wrote uh, for quite a century, for all, practically a century. She, she was born in 1917 and uh, passed away in 1989. So she had a, a practically a whole century uh, to write poetry. And um, she has um, a very, very specific or a very, very uh, interesting approach to the, the description of life in the cities. Uh, she has uh, quite an attention to the emotions, as a matter of fact. And I want to dig into these kind of um, topics uh, by a woman um, poet uh, in connection to the development of life in the cities. Uh, as it was happening by those years in uh, in China, it was kind of new. People were moving from the countryside to the cities, and you know there were different uh, things happening there. And she she's very very refined in the way she expresses this move. Uh, and I would like to just learn more about her. So I'll um, I'll be busy with her poetry for the next coming months. <laughs> Well, it sounds great. And congratulations on the book. And thanks so much for making time to talk with us today, Juicy. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. I found it really stimulating and uh, a kind of encouragement to, to my work. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.